Well, I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3, we'll look at verses 1 through 10 this morning. Before we read it and consider it, I invite you to pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, as we take a look at a snippet from the life of Moses, we know that ultimately this has to do with our Lord Jesus Christ and it has bearing upon our own lives as well. So as we navigate this passage, looking at it, considering it, it's our prayer that you would call to yourself any who are sitting here who may not know you. We pray that you would uh, work and mold and shape into the image of your Son, all of us who do know you. We pray that you would equip us uh, by your Holy Spirit through what we look at to do works of ministry, and we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, Exodus chapter 3 at verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horab, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." Thus far, the reading of God's Word, may He bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So, brothers and sisters uh, of Hope Church and everyone with us here uh, this morning, this is uh, really the Lord calling Moses into uh, service, into a a special, a particular kind of of service toward him, a a sort of ministry of Moses, as it were. And I want us to notice uh, four things about uh, God calling Moses into service and how it comes to bear upon our own lives Uh, God calls us into service by means of uh, specialized preparation, intellectual devastation, relational recalibration, and then finally missional motivation. So those four things. He calls us into service just like he called Moses into service by means of specialized preparation or training, intellectual devastation or giving us something that we really haven't seen before, relational recalibration, and then finally, missional motivation. So first, specialized preparation. Take a look with me, if you would, at verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horab, the mountain of God. Now Moses is about 80 years old at this point. (laughs) 
okay? Nothing overly impressive about him. He's past his prime. If he got into a fight with an Egyptian at this point, he might be the one buried instead of the Egyptian being buried. He's no longer this strong, vivacious uh, young man that he was when he was 40 years old. And then he's doing a rather lowly sort of work. He's shepherding. Uh, if you don't think it's lowly, uh, remember the angel of the Lord appeared to who at the birth of Jesus? To the shepherds. That was a point as well. God going to the lowly people to announce something that was incredible. So Moses doesn't have a great career path at this point. He could have been second in power in Egypt, right? Now he's uh, uh, shepherding some flocks out in the middle of nowhere, and he's done it for a long time. In fact, he's working for his father-in-law, Jethro. So again, uh, not a great uh, career path for Moses. He's been rejected by his people at this point. He's learned to be content with where God has placed him. Uh, He's learning what it is to wait upon the Lord. If the Lord's going to call him to do something, Lord, I'm 80 now. You need to get going soon. Or it's been 40 years since I tried to go and lead your people. Uh, They rejected me, and now 40 years later, here I am, I'm 80. But he's also learning what it's like to wait upon the Lord in the wilderness. This isn't just anywhere. He's not not shepherding in a land of milk and honey, as it were. (laughs) He's, He's in the wilderness going around Midian, again, uh, uh, plenty of places for sheep to graze and to feed, but also plenty of wide open spaces where it's a little more barren. Why do you suppose the Lord put Moses in this sort of training center? Why do you, sort of, why do you suppose that the Lord did this to Moses for 40 years? I don't think it's accidental, beloved. Why did the Lord uh, cause Moses to go into a very unimpressive career? Because soon enough, Moses is going to lead a very unimpressive people. Remember what the Lord said about Israel when he brought them out. I didn't bring you out because you were more numerous or because you were more powerful. (laughs) If the Lord was going to save a great nation, he would have saved the Egyptians. God brought the Israelites out. They were very unimpressive. God is preparing Moses to lead a very unimpressive people by himself knowing what it's like to be unimpressive. What else is the Lord teaching them? He's going to be rejected by these people time and time again. So that's why he needed to learn what it feels like earlier on in the chapter. What does it feel like to be rejected? Moses is going to have to get his, his mind around this if he's going to lead the Israelites because over and over they're going to say, we'd rather go back. Moses, we don't, we don't want you to lead us. You lead us back. Finally, we don't want you to lead us. Just get out of here. We'd rather have you dead. The people are going to reject Moses over and over and over again. So God put him in this training center, this, this specialized training center for Moses saying, you need to learn to deal with rejection. Moses is going to be walking around with these people for a long time. 40 years is going to be walking through the wilderness. 40 years is a long time to be leading these people. So what is God doing right now? He's preparing Moses, training him to learn to wait on the Lord. Lord, your timing. He's teaching Moses patience. And then finally, he's going to be, he's learning to wait on the Lord in the wilderness. Why? Because they're going to be there a long time. <laughs> now, they're, they're going to be walking around with sandals that don't wear out amazingly so. But likely this, again, is the Lord's way of teaching Moses, look, you need to learn what it's like to shepherd in the wilderness because you're going to be wandering around in here for a long time with people that don't like you. So the Lord is giving Moses a very specialized training, as it were, before he calls him to lead the Israelites out. Now, what, what do I want to look at this? I want to look at this and just briefly notice uh, one thing. Whatever ministry the Lord has for you in the future, beloved, he is training you right now for it specifically you individually. Moses was trained up. God put him, as it were, in this furnace of affliction, this difficulty. And then finally, God appears to him in this chapter and says, now you're ready to go. Moses said 40 years early, I'm ready. Here I am, Lord. I'm going I'm to take this thing over. And, and God abruptly says, it ain't happening now. <laughs> Not yet. He's in Midian. He's shepherding. 
And then the Lord finally says, now it's go time. But Moses had a lot to learn before the Lord could use him. Whatever we're going through right now in this life is specialized training and preparation for what God may do through us later on in our life. In other words, God isn't wasting any of your time even though you might think he is. God isn't wasting your experiences even though you might be thinking, Lord, I'd love to do this now. Why can't I do it? He's saying, maybe you will in the future, but, but I'm not wasting your life now. It's not a waste. And you can see this oftentimes. Those who are most faithful in a particular ministry, we're, we're all supposed to be equipped for works of ministry. Those Christians that, that oftentimes have, have just great ministries that you won't even hear about, you'll never hear about. They'll die and you'll never hear about them. They were equipped for years. They went through certain experiences. And so that's why now they can minister to certain people. They, they know what it's like to have been drug addicts. So they can go back now, having been redeemed, and they can minister to drug addicts. That specialized training a lot of us will never undergo. But beloved, each of us is uniquely gifted by God. Each of us is uniquely prepared by God for what he's going to call us to. So think about this. What has God brought you through? What are the difficulties God's brought you through? This preparation almost always looks like trial and pain. What difficulties have you come through? They're not accidental. God didn't forget about you. And somehow, some way, he's going to use those for his glory, for the good of his kingdom. Uh, be in thinking about that. What have I gone through that can be useful? Maybe there's somebody you know that, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I can really reach them. Maybe you've been where they are and you can be a tremendous help for them. And God's calling you to go to them. Uh, you'll have a sympathy that most people won't because you've been there before. Again, that's part of Moses' training. John Newton actually wanted to pastor at 33 years old. He wanted to pastor an Anglican church, but the Anglicans didn't want him. He wasn't educated enough, and they really didn't like his past. But there were plenty of independent churches that would have taken John Newton as their pastor. He didn't want to be an independent pastor, so he stuck. <laughs> For six years or seven years, he was turned down by the Anglicans six different times. And finally, one bishop looked upon him with a little bit of pity and said, you can go pastor this church. And afterwards, Newton said this, I can now see clearly that at the time I would have first gone out, though my intention was, I hope, good in the main, yet I overrated myself and had not that spiritual judgment and experience which are requisite for so great a service. In other words, he can look back on his life and say, you know what, I needed that. I needed seven years to sit here and be rejected over and over and over again because I just wasn't mature enough, I wasn't ready for it, and now I can see that I am. If you want to play in the NFL on Sunday, you have to undergo the trial of preparation, right? nonstop years of work, pain. You want to be in the Olympics someday? You have to undergo the, 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 the train, the pain of training, difficult work. Do you want to be used by God spiritually in his kingdom to advance it? There's no difference. You'll have to undergo training, beloved, preparation for it. The Lord will walk you through difficulty, and it's ultimately to glorify himself. Well, then secondly, uh, Moses is prepared through intellectual devastation, verses 2 to 3. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'm going to turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. So Moses has been around this, remember, uh, in these fields, as it were, for 40 years. He's been to this place before. Moses has been going all over the place, and yet... Something catches his attention. There's a bush that's on fire, but the bush isn't being consumed. Now, this would have gone against all of his training. 
against, uh, it doesn't take a lot of common sense to figure out why this would have caught his attention. This is interesting. This is something outside of his worldview. After all the years shepherding in the wilderness, shepherding in Midian, he's never seen something like this. And Moses said, I'm going to, I need to go check this out. This blows my mind. This boggles my mind. This is out of the ordinary. I don't have an intellectual explanation of this. I can't explain this scientifically. Uh, a fire takes fuel. The bush is the fuel, right? It can't be because it's not being burned up. So somehow this fire is burning with a source that I just can't see. And so he goes over to check it out. This was the first step in the Lord's method of taking Moses' eyes off the ordinary and getting them on the extraordinary. This is the way that the Lord caught Moses' attention. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus does this too. Maybe the most startling is in John 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, you know, you must uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood, to drink the blood of the Son of Man, or you have no life in you. His disciples were trying to wrap their minds around that. Many of them walked away and stopped, stopped following him after that. Like, we can't intellectually get our minds around this. Beloved, the Lord is throwing Moses an, intellectual, an intellectually devastating thing right in front of him to catch his attention. What's interesting about this is that nowhere is this issue ever resolved. Nowhere is it ever explained. Moses has no resolution on this. The Lord doesn't take them aside after they come out of Egypt and they're walking around in the wilderness and say, hey, you want me to tell you about the bush, how, how I pulled this off? You want me to give you a scientific explanation of this? It was never resolved. It's not addressed. Because the point wasn't, Moses, come look at this miracle and I'll tell you how to figure it out. The point was God getting Moses' attention so that Moses could come into a relationship with God and God could use him for his purposes. The point was to get Moses' attention and bring him into relationship with God. The point wasn't, Moses, I'm going to make you smarter than everybody else. Now you can go tell everybody in Egypt how a bush can burn without being consumed. Why doesn't God resolve the issue? He doesn't resolve it because the main issue of the event is not to teach Moses how a bush can burn without being resolved, but to get Moses' attention and reveal himself to Moses. I want us to think about a few things as we look at this. The main point of an intellectual crisis that God may bring into our lives, beloved, is not so that you and I can figure out how to solve it. Not necessarily how you and I can solve this when God brings intellectual crises into our life, but how we can come to know God through it in a way that we never have before. This is simply to get Moses to come over to the bush, and then God starts dealing with Moses. But he's not telling him how this, burning, how this bush is burning. That's not the issue. He's telling about who he is and what he's going to do with him. What are some intellectual crises? I, I, most of us aren't wandering around the square uptown palace seeing a bush on fire and it's not being consumed. That's not, that's not where we are. That's not an intellectual crisis that, that we're undergoing. But there are some common intellectual crises that sometimes draw people into knowing God. How about inexplicable suffering? That's maybe the best one, this theodicy issue. If God is all-powerful and God is all-good, then how can he allow tsunamis to wipe off tens of thousands of people off the map? How can he allow small children to die in infancy? How can he allow people to be born to this world crippled? And these are, these are things that intellectually are, are difficult, beloved, to wrap your mind around. If he's all good and all powerful, why doesn't he stop this? Why doesn't he prevent it from happening? It's a great question. Why doesn't he save everybody? Intellectually difficult questions. And the Bible, ultimately, we know the answer is God's glory, right? 
But at the end of the day, that's not necessarily a satisfying answer that we can go out to the rest of the world and be like, well, here's the reason why we've got all the pet answers. No, God reveals certain things to us, beloved, the, the revealed things, but the hidden things he keeps to himself. In other words, we don't need to know. But here's what it does. It draws you and I in to consider that maybe this God is just bigger than we thought. That maybe there's something out there bigger than our lives which can explain this entire universe that we live in because I can't explain it. Because what do you do with hundreds of thousands of people dead from a tsunami? How do you explain that to your kids? How do you explain people dying when they're two years old? How do you explain a non-Christian whose life is going way better than yours if God is all-powerful and good? Beloved, these are many times God's way of devastating us intellectually in order to draw us closer to Him. Lord, I can't explain this, but I'm going to go over here and take a look at this, just like Moses did the burning bush. Ultimately, it's a picture of the ultimate intellectual crisis. Ever seen an eternal king born in an animal shelter and laid in a feeding trough? Ever seen holiness itself enter an ugly world to be treated as sinfulness itself? Ever seen a mighty king die voluntarily for subjects who hate him? Ever seen power itself die in weakness? How is it that for an intellectual crisis used by God for the purpose of, to bring himself to all men, Augustine put it this way, man's maker was made man that the bread might be hungry, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired from the journey, that strength might be made weak, that life might die. What Moses is catching a glimpse of and probably doesn't even realize it is the gospel, actually. I can't explain it. It doesn't fit into my worldly categories. A bush burning, but it's not consumed. A king coming and being laid in a manger. The one who made Mary being born into her womb so that the one who's born is older than the one who gave him birth. How do you explain this, beloved? How can you look at Christ and come up with an intellectually satisfying explanation to this? Ultimately, you can't. It's, it's what? It's God's wisdom. It looks like foolishness to the world, foolishness to the Greeks. But to Christians, it's the power of God. It's amazing. It draws us in. It captures our attention. It's the Lord's way of getting a hold of us to bring us into a relationship with Him so that He can tell us who He is and then send us out. So, beloved, I don't know what God has used in your life or what He is using, but He does get a hold of our attention. He does bring things into our life which we say, now, now I'm really stuck. And I don't have a categorical explanation. I can't put this in some neat little box and say this fits. Beloved, that's God's way of working in us, working through us, trying to turn us upside down, as it were, before He sends us out into the rest of the world. How is God getting your attention? What's he doing to confound your conventional wisdom in order that you might know him in a better way because he's always doing something? Thirdly, he brings Moses into a relational crisis, verses 4 and 5. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, don't come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, here's the... <laughs> Here's the conundrum. So first of all, he says, Moses, Moses, kind of a term of endearment. This is what the Lord says when he's trying to get somebody's attention. First Samuel 3, Samuel, Samuel, 
Luke 10, Martha, Martha, Acts 9, Saul, Saul. That's a real big one. Okay, so the Lord's getting Moses' attention, trying to draw him in. And then as soon as Moses says, here I am, the Lord says, stop there. Moses, come, but you better not get too close. So there's a, there's a tension here. There's a relational issue going on here. Well, Lord, do I come or do I go? Can I come all the way in or not? And the Lord's saying, come, but there's a stopping point. And he tells him, take your shoes off, your sandals, get them off the place where you're standing as holy ground. And this would have confounded Moses utterly. Lord, I've been here yesterday, he might, he might be thinking, and it wasn't holy ground yesterday. The sheep have urinated here plenty of times. Why is this ground holy now? What, why all of a sudden do I have to take my sandals off? It's because the presence of the Lord makes this holy. All of a sudden, this is holy ground because the Lord is there. And where the Lord is, therefore, things are holy right then and there. God showed up, and his presence makes this holy. So now Moses is in the middle of a workday. He's doing his ordinary thing. And all of a sudden, his entire life is being turned upside down. The Lord's speaking to him out of the bush. He's telling him, come here, but don't you dare come too close. And you can take your sandals off now because where you're standing is now holy because I'm right in front of you. Later on in the book of Exodus, the Lord will set up a tabernacle and it will contain a holy place and it will contain a most holy place. You had to be a priest to go into these places. And the high priest could only go into the most holy place once a year and not without blood or he wouldn't come out. And here you have Moses standing right in front of the Lord. And one of the things commentators have noticed is not why wasn't the bush consumed, but why wasn't Moses consumed? Moses is standing in a holy place. He's not consecrated some sort of priest. He didn't come without blood. He's not standing there with blood. Why isn't Moses consumed right now? One of the interesting things about the passage is actually in verse 2, verse 4, and verse 6, I want you to notice something. Verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And then in verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, and then verse 6, I am the God of your father. The angel of the Lord actually turns into the Lord, synonymous. So the angel of the Lord, who first appeared to Moses out of the bush, is now speaking but what the Holy Spirit's making clear is that the angel of the Lord here is also the Lord himself. They're the same person. So who is it in the Bible that is both infinitely holy, stay away, yet can also come close enough to sinners that they can approach him? Well, that's no, no one other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That what Moses is confronting, who Moses is confronting here is really the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he can come near and not be consumed. And yet he's also coming into the presence of holiness because Jesus is God. So, beloved, Moses is really uh, encountering uh, just a real difficulty here. How do I relate to this God? Come close, yet you can't come too close. And then in verse 6, we're told, uh, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Moses didn't, have appear, didn't appear to have much of a reaction to these things until God told him that he is eternal. In other words, the Lord, when he says, I'm the God of your father, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's not saying, look, Moses, I'm going to be your God, and we're going to do this thing together. He's saying, no, I was the God of Abraham. Remember him? God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. In other words, I've been around. I'm the same Lord, and that's who 
I am, and that's who's going to be sending you. I'm also the God of your father. All of a sudden, Moses was afraid to look at him. Moses, he's, he's turning his face now. He, he understands this is no local deity. This is the God of heaven and earth. This is, this is the one my dad told me about growing up in the father of Amram before his mother had to turn him over again to Pharaoh's daughter. All of a sudden, no, Moses knows who he's looking at, who he's confronting. This God is real. Moses had likely heard about this Lord growing up. No doubt, Amram told him all about the Lord. But now Moses is seeing this Lord face to face. He's encountering the real God personally. Moses here discovers the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And I want us to consider something very briefly before we move on to to the end here, the missional issue. It's possible to know all about God, which we could argue that Moses did. Well-educated, not just by the Egyptians, but probably by his parents growing up in the faith. Moses knew all about God up to this point. It's possible for us to read incredible theology books, know all the attributes of God, good things to know. It's possible for us to have the Westminster Confession of Faith down pat, to know our Bibles really well, to know all about who God is and how He operates, and yet, catch this, not know Him personally. It's possible, beloved, not to have encountered Him, met Him, know Him, have a personal relationship with Him. The most important thing for us, just as Christians, period, is that we know God. But especially if we're going to be out on God's mission, doing His work as Moses is about ready to go do, we need to know God. We need to not just know about Him, but know Him personally. You know, it's one thing to know um, uh, about the current president. You can know facts about him, right? Where he was born, uh, how old he is, who he's married to, who his kids are. But do you know him personally? I doubt it. To know him personally, you'd have to be his wife, maybe his children, maybe his friends, right? And probably none of us are. It's one thing to know all the facts about God. It's another thing to, like Moses here, undergo a time in your life, and hopefully it continues on to the end of our life, where we meet him face to face, where we, we have a relationship with him through prayer, through reading his word, through enjoying communion with him, meditating upon his goodness, upon who he is where all these facts now enter into our hearts and change our life. Well, finally, there's a missional issue going on here. There's a a missional motivation, as it were, in verses 7 to 10. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, And then skip down. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, all of God's appearing to Moses is culminating in this. God appeared to Moses in order to send Moses out on a mission. And before he sends him out, there are two preambles, two sort of introductions that I want us to grasp because it matters for our going out as well. Number one, he said, I'm the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is so important for Moses to know. Not just so that he knows historically this is the eternal God, the only true and living God who's sending me. But before Moses goes anywhere, God reminds him uh, of, of what he's done with the people in the past as well. I'm the God of Abraham, the coward. I'm the God of Isaac, horrible father. I'm the God of Jacob, pretty much lived a lie his whole life. I'm the God of your father, 
a lowly slave in Egypt of no prominence whatsoever. The Lord tells Moses that. He tells him, this is who I am. These are the kind of people that I use to advance my kingdom. So if Moses is saying, look, I'm, I'm not bold enough to go out and do this, as we're going to look at in just a little bit, before we even get to Moses, how many of us are saying this? Lord, I'm not bold enough to go out and do what you want me to do. Look at Abraham. Yeah, she's my sister. <laughs> I'll risk her neck, not mine. <laughs> she's my sister. Lord, I, I've just not been good enough in my family. Take a long look at Isaac. Favoritism of children destroyed his family. Lord, I've lived a lie pretty much my whole life. Take a look at Jacob. That's not a beautiful life. And let, the Lord comes to Moses. Oh, Lord, I'm not prominent enough. I'm not big enough. Take a look at Amram, Moses' father. I'm the God of your father. A lowly slave in captivity. And all they could do was just put Moses in a basket in the Nile and hope for the best. Beloved, what are our excuses for not going? Again, more next week, Lord willing. But the Lord sort of destroys them right from the start. Remember who I am. I'm the God of your father and the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Look what I've done through these people. Beloved, helpful for each of us to know before we go out into the world. God uses crooked arrows to shoot straight. What else does he have to use? Are there any straight arrows for God to use? Is there anybody really good enough? No, of course not. But he's going to use you. He's going to use people like you and me and other believers with all of our faults, with all of our problems. And he's going to shoot straight because he's that kind of God. He's powerful. He overcomes our weaknesses. But the second missional motivation is this. God cares about hurting people. Verses 7 and 9, I'm just going to take a few snippets and read through them. I have surely seen the affliction. I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them. Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Before Moses is sent on any sort of mission, God is telling him, I care about hurting people. I care about these people. Their cries are coming up to me, and I care, and I'm going to do something. And by the way, I'm going to use you to do this work. And Jesus proves that God cares, doesn't he? It's amazing, his earthly ministry. Just a few passages out of Matthew. Chapter 18, verse 16. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. Matthew 14, 14. When he went to shore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Matthew 21, 14. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Beloved, God cares about hurting people people hurting physically, people hurting spiritually. He cares about the eternal state of souls, which is why he sends us out to evangelize. We're involved in this work. We don't save. We don't elect people. But we're involved in this work of reaching out to folks that they might come to Christ and not undergo eternal suffering. So before you and I go out into this mission in the world, we need to realize something that God cares about hurting people and he desires to use people like you and me to go help them in their suffering. And if you don't believe that's the case, then take a look at the Lord Jesus Christ who came and ministered to who? Broken people. Aren't you one of them? Aren't I one of them? 
Hasn't he ministered to us? Hasn't he come all the way down into our petty little lives and said, you're mine? Your sins are paid for? I'm going to hang in your place. I don't want you suffering underneath my wrath forever. I'll put my son in place of you. He'll take the blows so that you can go free. That's how much God cares for hurting people, beloved. He's proven it. He cares for you. You and I are hurting people. And so now we need to know this. We need to grasp this before we can go out into the world and minister to hurting people. Because we minister in Jesus' name. And when they ask, why are you serving me like this? Why do you care? Oh, let me tell you about a God who cares. You want to know why I'm here to help? Not because I'm some sort of great person. Let me tell you what God has done for me. He's redeemed me out of the pit. He's put me straight. He's healed me where I'm broken. He's paid the debt of my sins. He stood in my place and bore the curse I should have borne. That's why I'm here, because I want you to know him. And I'm coming in his name. And even if you never believe in him, I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you as long as I can because of his great love first for me. So how have you come to know God better through what he's done in your life? Is it encouraging to your heart to know who God has used in the past to advance his kingdom, it should be. How does God's desire to alleviate human suffering through compassion and redemption, having already been yourself redeemed, motivate you to help those who are suffering? What mission is God personally calling you to? Just like a personal mission God gave to Moses. Because, beloved, he's given you and I gifts, and he's calling you and I to something. Let's pray.